You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Ed, we have full earnings coverage. Of course, we digest Apple. It rises on signs of its weathering that smartphone slowdown. We've also got DoorDash, Lyft, Block Analysis. You name it, we're on it. And following another strong U.S. payrolls report, we'll discuss the state of the job market for the tech industry, specifically when it comes to artificial intelligence. Plus, we'll break down results from Warner Brothers as the company reports a surprise profit and streaming. How will the writer's strike impact results going forward, though? All of that as we analyze the broader context of the markets today. It's Friday feeling when you're looking at the regional bank index in particular. In fact, when you're looking at tech stocks, too, even with the strong jobs report and what that means in terms of Federal Reserve's still probably having to tame inflation. We're looking at 1.8% rise on the Nasdaq. We really are seeing a bounce back in risk sentiment today. KBW Bank Index, as I say, on fire up more than 4%, but remember how far we've fallen over the last few days. This is all about a bounce back in regional banks. Maybe people just buying the dip today, Ed. I know you're going to dig into that a little bit later. The VIX, that all-important fear gauge, therefore really pulling down by almost three points. We're at 17 handle once again. So we decide we're going to go long this market into the weekend. Let's quickly look at what's happening in terms of the world of crypto, because actually... It looks as though risk sentiment is rallying there as well. We're at 1.8%. We're not at that all-important 30,000 level, but still a little bit of a pushback. And I just drill into what's happening in terms of the micro. Is there, is there risk on sentiment there? Is it earnings? Yeah, there's a lot driven by earnings. You look at a name like Lyft, down 20%, more than 20%. Actually, at one point in the session, Lyft is touching a record low on that stock. The outlook for revenue is not uh, jiving with investors. I think there's a lot of concern about the near-term economic model and the new CEO's plan to turn that around. Really big decline in Lyft. Streaming's interesting. Paramount, 24 hours ago, had a loss. Warner Brothers Discovery out with a surprise profit for the streaming unit, even though the legacy business is seeing advertiser flight. We're seeing some buoyancy in those names. And then again, you talk about the bank. 
Netflix, PacWest, up the most on record, 84% or so. Why? I'm actually not seeing much rationale on the Bloomberg or out in the reporting. It's, it may be a buy-the-dip kind of situation. We will dig into that later in the program. There is one clear name moving us to the upside, and that is Apple. You look at the gain in Apple shares following what was a beat on expectations in the quarter, strength in iPhone and in services, growth in both units year on year, although low growth, 1.5% or so for the iPhone, 5.5% for the services. That 4.8% gain is the biggest jump since November. We did get commentary on AI, quite muted, all about emerging markets, all about India, and then that developing services business. I know you and I have been talking about fintech in particular and what Apple's doing on that side of things. That's where there was some strength. Yeah, and strength in terms of the points that it's adding to the S&P, more than 14. So Apple helping drag the market high. Let's get more on all of this. Third Bridge, global sector lead for TMT. It is Scott Kessler. So let's go back to basics with Apple. The broad picture, we're talking about the nuances of AI there, but really this is about iPhones and still demand internationally. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the quarter that they just reported, more than half of revenues came from iPhone. iPhone outperformed. But as you alluded to, it seems like the other major product areas, when you think about hardware and you think about Mac and iPad and wearables, um, those all saw declines in the quarter. So iPhone was uh, the standout in terms of total revenues, but also in terms of the beat. And I think that helped carry Apple um, over the finish line, so to speak. Yes, Scott, I'll jump in. I think there's a real interest here on India and emerging markets. How much confidence does that, does that give you that Apple has pockets for major growth going forward? You know what? I think growth has to be on uh, the minds of Apple investors today. Sure, people are happy. The stock is up. The company reported results uh, that were largely better than expectations. But I think more intermediate term, people have to wonder about whether or not this is uh, a double-digit grower in terms of revenues um, in the foreseeable future or at any point in the future, to be frank. Um, emerging markets would seemingly have to be a big part of that. But when you you think about India, and that's something they've been talking about, and I think they talk more about India during the call than they did AI, and rightly so, because that seems to be more of a near-term opportunity for the company. That being said, I think people understand that getting that premium pricing is going to be difficult in India, and so the strategy and the specifics are very key there. We'll see kind of how they go about approaching that market. There is no issue when it comes to things like the number of potential customers and kind of the possible volumes going forward, but how that plays into what Apple is able to do, yeah. given the price sensitivity there, I think that's a big question going forward. Scott, how much of the, the, the rally in shares to your mind is driven by the comments on AI? You know what, I have to be honest. Um, I don't know that people are making a lot of those. Um, you know, it's interesting. I did a search of the transcript for AI. Um, there were a handful of references. I think there were more references to Mumbai <laughs> than AI. And I think that goes to what I was just saying before. I think talking about the fact that it's something they're thinking about, there's something it's something they're looking at, uh, they don't speak to their product roadmaps. I mean, that's their way of saying that we haven't quite figured it out to the point where we want to talk about this. But look, we speak to experts day in and day out, and they consistently tell us that this is an area where uh, Apple is behind. If you think about the 
headlines we've seen yeah. from Microsoft and from Alphabet and from others like Meta, those companies are all well ahead of Apple, I think, when it comes to AI. You know, Caroline, we were waiting for, for the numbers and services to beat. Services came in below expectations, but still led growth. And what was interesting is the kind of emphasis on the fintech side of that business. And that really was the talking point throughout the quarter, Scott. Interestingly, was the fact that they're launching the savings card, the fact that they're offering such a high yield on savings. How much is fintech or indeed just the addiction to the services side and the way they're trying to keep us so much within Apple's ecosystem a selling point for you at the moment? You know, I think it actually is pretty important. I think a lot of people are wondering about kind of um, R&D and innovation and growth. And with WWDC kicking off, I think, exactly a month from today, rightly so, they should be thinking about those things. But Apple has been talking more about payment services and financial services. And we've regularly heard that not only does that have a massive uh, total addressable market than Apple can pursue, but that Apple actually has products and services that can take share there. And they've been pretty active, frankly, not just over the last couple of years, but the last couple of quarters mm. in terms of seizing upon that opportunity. Scott Kessler, Thurbridge on all things Apple. Thank you for your time. We're going to turn to DoorDash, the food delivery company beating estimates driven by strong demand for deliveries. Joining us now, CFRA, CFRA senior analyst Angelo Zeno. Angelo, hello. Thanks this is an interesting company. Yeah, good to see you. What does this tell you about the consumer right now and where they're spending money? I find DoorDash, Lyft, Uber, the gig economy names, a pretty good barometer, right, of what's going on on the ground. Yeah, I would actually agree with that. And when you kind of look at the numbers from all three across, you know, this week, I'd say for the most part, it's been very resilient in nature. I mean, you kind of look at DoorDash's numbers, actually, they grew the top line very well, grew at about 40%. And when you kind of look at where the gross orders were up about 29%, I'd say maybe about a third of that, a third of that, you know, being driven by their endeavors into Europe with that Walt acquisition. But nonetheless, when you kind of look at the results here, Specifically from the likes of, of Uber and to a lesser extent DoorDash, I'd say the consumer right now looks really resilient. And specifically, I'd say on the food delivery side of things, that was kind of an area where a lot of you know investors out there thought that you know potentially revenue would start kind of you know waning off in a yeah. post-pandemic world, and that just hasn't happened yet. And in fact, what's also working for them is not just your delivery of your hot food, but plenty of other things to be delivered. How much does that have to be part of the business model? Because it's the one area that Lyft really doesn't have. Yeah, listen, I think that's a, a great contributor for both Uber as well as DoorDash. I think Uber kind of highlighted 35% growth in kind of new vertical markets within kind of that delivery side of things. We actually think uh, uh, DoorDash growing faster than, than that in kind of adjacent markets. So it's a huge part of their kind of growth initiative here over the next couple of years and kind of, you know, adding stickiness to that platform because consumers that are kind of leveraging their other businesses, whether it be on the food delivery side of things or whether it be in ride sharing, they are, you know, they are looking to, you know, further kind of take advantage of services in other adjacent markets. And I mean, Ed, this is where you really do compare and contrast the companies that do well, that have broadened their overall offering. And then you look at Lyft, which is tumbling today, Ed. Yeah, we're down 21 percent. We've just touched another record low. We'll see if that holds through the close. Is this just a Lyft problem, a unique Lyft problem? 
I think there is. I think it is a lift problem, to be honest with you. When you kind of look at you know what investors are rewarding this week versus what they're not rewarding, especially in, in broader tech, right? They are re- rewarding the names that are kind of pushing the bottom line, and we've seen it. You know, not only from Uber, which which you know clearly is essentially holding OpEx steady here and seeing that double-digit you know top-line orders growth. DoorDash also doing it last three quarters, essentially keeping OpEx relatively flat, growing the top line nicely. You saw what Shopify just announced yesterday, right? And you saw the impact on the stock price there. When you kind of look at Lyft here, they've announced some big cost cuts in in the sense of a 20% workforce reduction on top of a a north of a 10% workforce reduction late last year. But the fact of the matter is, those cost cuts are just being reinvested in the business to try to keep afloat versus their bigger competitor in Uber. So it's not going back to shareholders. They're not benefiting in any way. And that's a big problem in this type of market. And we don't think that likely changes anywhere, anytime in the near future because of the environment we're dealing with. And especially if macro conditions start to deteriorate, then Lyft becomes in a whole lot of uh, trouble relative to uh, Uber. Oh, Angela Zeno, you're the perfect guest for these sorts of days. To wrap it all together, we thank you for the CFRA. I mean, Ed, you were just talking about the volatility that we see in Lyft, the record low near. Well, yeah. look at the record move that we're getting on the day in certain bank stocks, regional bank stocks. Look, PacWest rallying hard, being stopped out time and time again. We're up what, more than 80%. Yes. There seems to be no fundamental change here. A lot of people are saying, look, you've got to buy this dip. Ultimately, it is too hard sold off. But actually, put it in context, we're back to the highest since... Oh, Wednesday. We're still well off the average price, which is in excess of $20. Yeah, look, there are big names in the market, like Bill Ackman, who say there's a lot of concern in the banking sector still. The point that our colleagues at Bloomberg Intelligence would make is that the sell-off in these stocks is not easy to reconcile with the liquidity available to the banks. You look at the, the deposit base... This is not Silicon Valley Bank. These, the, the proportion of insured deposits is much higher. That's what I'm trying to do, Caroline. Our audience that's listening, the tech founders, the VCs, they bank with these names. And they're trying to work out like what's actually wrong. And a lot of that fear and concern gets spread through social media. It's on technology. It's also far easier to then become a reality as you're able to whip out your deposits that much faster using your bank app. But ultimately, the foundation of these banks aren't nearly as concerning. There isn't so much of an isolated focus on one particular type of borrower or one particular type of overall integrated system that just lent to to the overall tech scene. But we are still questioning, ultimately, the solidity of the entire financial system right now. Look, when Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan stepped in with First Republic, he was confident it would settle things down in the near term, settle things down. President Biden is currently making comments about what was a particularly strong set of jobs numbers today. Now, with 253,000 jobs being added, that was well above. I mean, it soared past most economist expectations, all but three of the 77 surveyed by Bloomberg. You've got health and education jobs to thanks for this. But notably, we're still seeing pretty strong hourly earnings coming in. They're coming in hot. That's an inflationary pressure for the Federal Reserve to have to tackle. Notably also, there is inequality within what's again a really low unemployment rate. When you're looking at overall, you're still seeing black unemployment rate at 4.7% vis-a-vis a white unemployment level at 3.1%. But overall, we did see unemployment coming in once again relatively low. This is a strong jobs market, even as we see the Federal Reserve continue to raise rates. We're hearing from President Biden. We understand Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is with him too, Ed. Caroline, 
Taking a little look at shares of Yelp, we're higher, two-tenths of a percent, after the online review company posted first quarter revenue that did come in ahead of analysts' expectations. Joining me here on set in San Francisco, Yelp CFO David Schwartzbach. David, you talk about high-intent users. What does that mean? First, Ed, it's great to be here. Thanks. High-intent users, when someone comes to Yelp, they actually tell us what they're looking for. It could be landscaping. It could be a locksmith. And so that actually enables us to really match that consumer with the right service pro when they come. And also, it's important to recognize nearly half of our visitors come from households with income over $100,000. So that's a great audience for advertisers to reach. When we look at your earnings and your outlook going forward, what does it tell us about engagement from the consumer in platforms like you? Are they, are they kind of penny-pinching right now and looking for the most reliable, valuable deals across all kinds of things? Or is this just a robust growth in use of platforms like yours? So what is certainly true is inflation is making things more expensive. And so I think overall consumers are spending about the same amount but less frequently. So they're really focused on ensuring they make a good decision. And what Yelp provides them is with reliable information to make that purchase decision. David, advertisers, are they willing to invest? Are they feeling confident in the moment? What's your assessment? So we obviously serve both large enterprise customers or advertisers as well as small and medium businesses. And what we see on the services side is as things have slowed down a little bit, service pros want to stay busy. And so they've actually increased their ad spend. And what we've seen on Yelp is that their spend per paying advertising location has gone up so that they can stay busy. And of course, we believe that with our high intent audience, we're able to match them with a great lead that leads to business for them. Got to ask it, artificial intelligence. What are you doing to incorporate that within the business? How have you got the right talent to ensure you can enact that sort of intertwinement? So we have been using artificial intelligence for some time. Of course, everybody's talking about ChatGPT and these new large language models. But for our search experience, for matching consumers with pros, we've been applying AI for some time. We have both the infrastructure and the ability to deliver that to the consumer when they visit the site. Now, large language models, making that interaction more conversational, we think that's a great opportunity for us, and we're looking forward to deploying it. It's still early, though. David shares up half a percent. We're up significantly higher earlier in the session, 3.6%. I covered QSRs for a really long time, restaurant industry. There's a tidbit that really fascinates me, which is that when you go to Yelp, you can look for independent restaurants normally. Is there data telling you that actually now people are looking at chains because of the value proposition? It seems like there is evidence that actually consumers are looking for value. There's definitely been a lot of talk about consumers choosing to go to quick-serve restaurants. On Yelp, though, when people are coming, they're really looking to find that hot and new restaurant or something that's different or if they're going out on a Friday night. Of course, people are very familiar with these large quick-serve restaurants, and so that's not the first thing they're searching for on Yelp. We are seeing continued interest, of course, in sit-down dining, and people want to make sure that experience is great. So, again, they come for our reliable reviews. What? is your key competitor at the moment from your perspective, David? Because dare I say it, and I mean this with full affection for all things Yelp, but it's pretty old school for many people. How are you feeling that it's still... Yeah, how do you feel that the younger generation are interacting with it? Are you feeling that you're remaining as relevant as present when everyone seems to be turning to different ways to search? I mean, Instagram for one example. 
So one of the things that we have at Yelp is actually an even distribution of consumers across each of the three large age groups, 18 to 34, 34 to 54, above 55 and above. So actually, folks who are younger are using us because they want to spend their money well. Now, obviously, video reviews on some of the other platforms or reviews through a post are gain a lot of attention, but completeness is very important. When you're going out, you want to ensure that you actually have a sense for all the things that you could do, and Yelp is that complete. So we delivered 13% growth in the first quarter. We think that was ter terrific performance. More than 60% of our revenue comes from services, and so while we're known for the restaurant side, we really have been taking share on the services side. All right, Yelp CFO David Schwartzbach, thank you so much. Carrie, some breaking news. Yeah, let's look at First Republic bankers, of course. We understand that the SEC is investigating actually the conduct of executives there. Before the government seizure, there was some reporting, some discussion about basically the sale of certain assets and indeed holdings and all of this is ahead of what's now been brought up by JP Morgan. The SEC is looking to whether any members of the executive team of First Republic improperly traded Ed on inside information. So we're going to be covering that particular story. We're also going to be going broader into the macro situation because we're knowing the administration, we know the Fed is looking at the banking sector, but the administration is also rather gloating at this jobs number today. So we understand that President Biden is really out there discussing this 253,000 number added to jobs, but there's still inflationary pressure within that. So keep a close eye on what President Biden has been saying today. We had some live discussion there, but overall he is holding a cabinet meeting, speaking about more to do with the trend, but they think overall inflation is trending in the right direction. From New York, from San Francisco, and from Washington, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
It is time now for Talking Tech, and we're going to start with Software AG. Shares falling after the German company look, refused to enter talks with a rival bidder for the company and said that it was supporting an increased $2.6 billion takeover offer from the existing backer Silver Lake Management. Meanwhile, billionaire tech investor Peter Thiel is reluctant to move his operations from Silicon Valley to Florida. Why? He, well, he's saying on a podcast on Wednesday, housing prices have soared compared to three years ago. It would just be too costly to make the move. And finally, New York Attorney General Letitia James proposing a state law to tighten rules over cryptocurrencies in her latest swing in an industry that she claims is suffering from rampant fraud and dysfunction. Ed, it's really interesting overall that we are seeing this focus at the moment on crypto coming from Tish James. She spoke about it all the way back at the beginning of the year. She's really been thinking about this from an inequality lens, worrying about people of color, about the lowest income that have been hit. Interesting dichotomy when you're looking at, well, the New York mayor who's been trying to take pay in Bitcoin, really trying to build up the situation of crypto here in New York. Yeah, and what we're hearing from those people that are in the crypto hype cycle, they're now looking at AI, but what they have in common is the AI regulation top of mind. Have a listen. I think the biggest mistake that was made in crypto was, is, and still is, just the absolute lack of clear-cut regulation so people know what the rules are that they should be playing by. I think that there were a lot of companies that were assuming that blockchain technology could be used for a lot of different things that it really shouldn't have been used for. From New York and San Francisco, this is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. There's a lot going on in the market, mm -hmm. especially for the technology sector, data, earnings. Let's talk about all of it. I think we've got a lot of catalysts pushing us to the upside. Look at the Nasdaq 100 up 1.5%. A big part of that is the jobs data coming in strong above many broad expectations. Outperformance in the semiconductor space. We're kind of finding our feet a bit. We've had downward pressure as a result of earnings. Qualcomm being a laggard as an example. You see the US 10-year yield climbing seven basis points, 10.4%. But we are away from that 3.6% level that we were at just a week ago and where we were holding for some time. Kind of risk on mentality sees Bitcoin creep a little higher beyond 29,000 US dollars per token towards 30,000 US dollars per token. Interesting developments overnight when it comes to AI. Mm. You talk about the mega caps that are making moves. Apple, biggest jump since November, moving on earnings. Not so much about the AI narrative. But I'm looking at Alphabet flat, a slight underperformer uh, when it comes to its mega cap tech peers. One reason might be the disclosure of an internal document from a concerned engineer about perhaps them falling behind. I think that's one thing to look at later in the show. That is a fascinating conversation we've got to get into and on our spaces a bit later, Ed. But meanwhile, let's talk about the jobs data once again. The here, the now. It's showing real strength, isn't it? 253,000 jobs added in the US market. Where is the demand coming from? Internet technology in particular. It's definitely on the minds of recent college graduates. So for more insight on what they are thinking about, let's bring in Handshake CEO, Garrett Lord, 
Handshake is a network and recruiting platform for early career talent. And look, they just put out their latest report on what they see in job search trends. Young people fresh out of school are willing and able to see that their workplace is going to be disrupted, Garrett. And to that end, how are we seeing people change their search? Are they all aware that generative AI is going to change the game? And are they trying to prep themselves for that? Yeah, well, I mean, you have to imagine what it was like being a college student over the last four years. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you, there was a global pandemic. You got sent home. You had to learn how to learn from home. Then you thought the economy was going to crash, but the economy started booming. And now fast forward to today where a lot of students, the headlines are companies are laying off employees. And so students, as you might imagine, they're very resilient. But now more so than ever are they interested in working in industries that value stability. I mean, students are looking at companies that, you know, 84% of them want a company that is really highlighting how stable the opportunities are. Students are also expanding the horizon to new industries. So students are 40% more likely to apply to industries that they hadn't considered before. So I think the dream job is like shifting uh, right now in real time. What's interesting is, well, defense seems to be an area that they're going into. I speak nothing about geopolitics on that, but Raytheon <laughs> was really trending up 200% in terms of searches. But Nike, Toyota, they're resilient brands. Are they therefore not looking for jobs at big tech companies, given some of the headlines around layoffs? Well, I think big tech searches are down 15% year on year. Big tech is still very much hiring in college today. But I think the dream job is like really shifting. So uh, I coming back to like the dream job might be working in EVs at General Motors or working in robotics at Johnson & Johnson. Or, you know, a fun story, you talk about Raytheon, like there's a student I just talked to earlier this week named Wes, who went to a small aeronautical school in Florida, and he built his profile on Handshake, got a message from Raytheon, and fast forward a week later, he's got an internship offer, and is actually going to work there. So that's an example of, like, connecting companies that view this moment as an opportunity to go on the, on the offensive. Like, Big tech, yes, is, is pulling back in terms of overall uh, demand from students, but companies view this as like an offensive opportunity to win top talent. So just this week, like publicly, John, uh, um, uh, JP Morgan and Fidelity talked about publicly increasing the number of early talent hires they're making. So they view this as an opportunity to pick up top talent. Really interesting. And Ed, I have to think at the moment what was interesting in the stats was also Capital One was being highly sought after, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley. I wonder yeah. if the current situation around banks is going to change that in terms of demand. Yeah, I find it so interesting because the, the headlines are about chaos and volatility and technology with the layoffs in the banking sector around SVB. But Garrett, what I'm actually interested in is, is the speed in which those uh, young people are finding jobs in those sectors. Is it a case of, oh, the opportunity is there for me and they take it? Uh, I mean, the, the students are very much interested in banking still. I mean, JP Morgan uh, has increased publicly the number of opportunities that they're posting on the network. They're hiring more software engineers than ever before. They're hiring more data scientists than ever before. And students really are interested in working in finance. Uh, I think, obviously, the news cycles uh, are dominating students' mindshare, but there are still tons of students that want to work in finance. I'm looking at some of the companies that are being sought out. I know we've been over many of them. You're talking about Raytheon, Nike, Toyota, Boeing, Chevron. Tell me what all of those have in common. What is it that makes them interesting to a young person seeking a modern day job? 
I think students really want to understand what a day in the life looks like at a company. And so what that really means is like, what are other students like them doing that were, have been there a year, 18 months? What does their day in the life look like? What skills are they learning? Uh, what exit opportunities are available inside of the company? Uh, they're really interested in understanding what the mission of the company and the impact that company's making on the world. They care more about that than, um, you know, they care more about mission than actually salary in most situations. So. I think companies that bring a personal approach to sharing what the culture looks like and the impact they're making on the world is a really important facet of those companies. Your mission at Handshake is to democratize access to opportunity. Now, when I look at the jobs data today, record unemployment, so low level of unemployment for black people in particular, 4.7%, but there's still a big disparity between white unemployment, which is 3.1%, and black unemployment, there's 4.7%. I'm interested in whether you're seeing the mission being around equality, the mission being around bringing in all types of people from whatever education background, and particularly minorities in this economic environment, or whether, unfortunately, that goes to the backseat as we see perhaps VC dollars going to diverse founders. Yeah. Uh I mean, companies are so focused on trying to build representation and build the future leadership of their company. Uh, many companies, in order to hire 50% women, they really want to have 50% applicants in order to hire 50% women. Or if they want to hire 13% black college students, it's important to have 13% applying. And so many companies are trying to be really proactive and shape their early talent programs to be able to have enough women and, and enough underrepresented students so they can cultivate and build those leaders internally. And so that's how companies use Handshake, is really focused on great, resilient, amazing talent and also diverse talent. Uh, and I think that very much connects to like my story. I mean, I was a, uh, grew up in a blue collar family. Right. I went to community college for two years. The mission of our company and why everyone goes to work every day is really around expanding access to students all across the country. Because I mean, so much about this is like, in the way the world works is like who you know, mm. or you know, what your parents do, or what school you go to. Talent's really everywhere and opportunity isn't. And so I think Handshake is really helping companies connect with talent everywhere. And to bolster the representation of their classes and to build the future workforce of tomorrow. Handshake CEO and co-founder Garrett Lord, I think that gives us kind of the boots on the digital ground of how the next gen of tech talent are looking for jobs. Thank you so much for your time. I want to keep talking about AI, with the White House saying it would support new regulations or legislation to mitigate the potential harms from AI. That's after, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris met with the CEOs of Alphabet, Microsoft, OpenAI and, and Anthropic yesterday. I want to break that all down and some other developments with Bloomberg's Rachel Metz the Bloomberg AI reporter. I mean, let's start, I saw a tweet that you did. Uh oh. <laughs> there was somebody missing from that meeting. Yes. Who was that? Uh, well, missing but popped in, that would be the president. Oh, I thought I was going to go with Zuckerberg. Oh. Okay, go with your, no, go with your president thought, that's fine. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I saw a tweet from, uh, from the president who said he, he uh, stopped in on the meeting, and I, I actually thought that was surprising that he wasn't a part of the meeting because the White House is saying like, how important this is, and a lot of companies are also saying how, how important it is to talk about um, coming up with um, legislation and just, just for the government to learn more about how these technologies are working as they're evolving quickly. So you, you have Sam Altman, Sundar Pichai, and Satya Nadella in a room with the vice president and at one moment the president mm -hmm. and Mark Zuckerberg is not there. Yes. Why is that significant? I think the point you raise is that Meta has a lot of people working in AI. Oh yeah, Meta has long been in AI. Meta has been researching AI, using AI in its products for I mean, the majority of the company's existence. Um, and a lot of its AI has been pushed out into, um, into the community and used to develop other things. So yeah, that is 
a pretty big surprise. Um, for like just one data point, a recent development from Meta called Llama, which is a large language model, uh, that is being looked at very seriously by a lot of people in the open source community yeah. as a way to catch up with uh, companies like OpenAI and Google. But drill there for a moment, Rachel, because I've been reading so many interesting Twitter threads today about this leak that we've seen from Google in particular mm. and a worry that basically everyone's behind the curve versus open source data at the moment in terms of building these large language models. Within that sort of Twitter storms that I've been seeing is the fact that, what was it, Llama, the large language model over at Meta kind of got leaked and has basically done Meta a huge service here. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, this model came out in a, in a way um, that probably wasn't intentional. And it has been used to bolster uh, the ways that people are developing large language models in the open source community, uh, which is a different sort of animal than a big company like Google who would do that stuff privately or OpenAI, which is also doing that privately. Um, when things are done in the open source community, they can be iterated on really quickly. Um, they are tending to be less expensive, and you just have way more eyes on these uh, software products, so you can have people either coming up with new ways to do new things or new ways to fix things that aren't working so well. It's really interesting. Let, let's go back to what you reported. A leaked memo from a pretty senior software engineer within Google about them falling behind. Kara alluded to it. But what have you reported? What happened? So this memo, um, or, or letter, you know, depending on how you want to talk about it, it's not an official company document, but it was something that this person had, um, had written, and it had been seen internally by a whole lot of different people at Google, and somebody then published it on a public Discord channel. Okay. And from there, it was then picked up um, by a, a lot of different people and published more widely. So... When you have something like that happening, you have somebody internal saying, hey, like, I mean, I think the wording was basically open source is eating our lunch. Um, that's, I feel like it's a pretty big deal. You don't see that strong wording that often, at least not sort of percolating out more widely. And, and perhaps it shows that a lot of people are feeling that way at large companies. Decentralization seems to be the talking point everywhere. Rachel Metz, thank you so much for bringing us what is fascinating scoop and indeed what's happening over at the White House, all things AI. And look, let's talk about how people are remaining pretty bullish about artificial intelligence. It's not just about jobs or productivity. Just take a listen to Tiger 21 chairman and founder, Michael Sonnenfeld, what they had to say. Artificial intelligence is also going to have a huge impact on climate, where we're going to need a lot of new technologies to fight climate. So you can look at some of the climate plays as well. Uh, but the largest technology companies are investing heavily in AI, and that's where the opportunity is if you're a believer in it. Shows how pervasive AI is in all the conversations that we're having. Now, coming up, a welcome sign with streaming for Warner Brothers Discoveries. The company sees subscriber growth and profits in its first quarter. But how did the company fare on other key metrics? More on that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. more earnings because it's a bit of a mixed bag over there at Warner Brothers Discovery which reported first quarter results that on the one hand saw the media giant post a surprise profit for its streaming business but on the other well the legacy cable networks not doing quite so well losing advertising losing viewers therefore the overall revenue missed estimates and so did adjusted EBITDA this in the week of course disappointing results from Paramount fresh writer strike on Hollywood there's a lot to discuss with the one and only Lucas Shaw who joins us now to break it all down let's just start on Warner brothers for a moment because it seems they wanted to lean in to max which is now branded and the fact that streaming is actually managing to prove profitable yeah i mean the, the big criticism of all these streaming enterprises has been that they lose money other than netflix uh and david zaslav the ceo of warner brothers discovery is clearly doing everything he can to turn max into a profitable service you know they're they're cutting costs in a lot of ways they've laid off people and that seems like positive news the problem or the, the cloud looming over all these companies is that their linear cable networks are declining really quickly. Um, and so investors are still a little bit uncertain whether the growth of the profits on streaming are ever really going to replace what was an incredibly lucrative business model. It's interesting because in a 24-hour span, Lucas, you had Paramount post that loss and then Warner Brothers posts the profit. What can we discern about the competitive nature of the two when it comes to streaming? Well, it may depend on sort of where they are in their investment cycle. You know, Paramount, I think, said that this year was going to be its year of, of peak investment. You know, it wasn't long ago, I think maybe a year and a half, where Paramount was still sort of bragging about how much it was spending because it thought that that's what Wall Street wanted to hear. It had this investor day in, in early 2022 or its earnings. I forget which one, maybe both. Uh, and, and it just really changed on a dime, uh, you know, around that time a year ago. Um, I think Warner Brothers Discovery has sort of moved into cost-cutting mode more swiftly, partially forced by the, the merger and those almost always resulting in cost-cutting. You know, Caroline, the story of the week that Lucas's team and screen time have been at the forefront of is the WGA and Hollywood strike, right? Mm. That's what we've been talking about. And really the intersection here of a new type of environment they have to work in, Lucas, the fact that there is a focus on streaming, what that means in terms of recompense for them. And also, yes. I mean, artificial intelligence is being some competitive threat too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Given the, the conversation we were just having about profitability and, and what happens to these companies, the strike could benefit a lot of these companies' bottom line. It's one of the reasons why some of the, the writers 
and a lot of industry experts are sort of concerned that this strike is going to go on for a long time because these companies looking to cut costs will benefit from not spending a bunch of money on new projects. Or, you know, we reported this week that some of the studios are already ceasing to pay some of these writers that they have producer deals with. Um, you know, it, it feels like the sides are pretty far apart on pay. Uh, and, and they're not even really close on a subject like AI, where the writers want certain projections and the studios feel it's too early to sort of put anything to paper. Lucas, the, the last strike was 2007, I believe, right? How long does this one go on? How are talks progressing? Yeah, I mean, the last one lasted about 100 days. I think the one in the late 80s was longer than that. It set the record. Um, look, I, I'm not supposed to make predictions, but nobody I talk to thinks that this one is going to be over anytime soon. It feels as if the studios have already shifted to focusing on the Directors Guild and the Actors Guild, both of which have contracts coming up in the next couple of months. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's going to stretch into the fall, uh, but, but of course things could change over the summer. And Lucas, of course, you report on this from Hollywood, from L.A., but our producer was saying how she saw people at the picket lines in New York as she came in to work today. I mean, this is, how, how national in nature does this become? Well, there are major production hubs in, certainly in, in New York. You know, a lot of the late night shows which, uh, which have already gone off the air are, are made in New York. And then you have people who work in Atlanta or in New Orleans or in Chicago. I don't know that you're going to have protests in all of those places, especially because the writers are more concentrated in, in L.A. and New York. But this has become a pretty global industry. And so even if, uh, even if the, the Writers Guild only affects writers in the United States, you're going to see people everywhere else governed. You know, I think there were some stories this week about uh, you know, writers in the U.K. being urged not to cross the picket line and do work with Guild signatories. There's a fair few strike actions going on in the UK more broadly, so one to watch out for. Lucas Shaw, great to have some time with you. Time now for going viral and much of the United Kingdom and the world in fact is buzzing for Saturday's coronation ceremony. Now the religious event celebrates the start of King Charles, the third reign over the British state. Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden has more. Coronation in 70 years will formally ring in King Charles III at Westminster Abbey, home to the ceremonies since 1066. At 74, he's the oldest monarch ever to be crowned. 2,200 guests will attend, roughly a quarter of the number who were at Queen Elizabeth II's 1953 coronation, and it's expected to take half the time. Amid a cost of living crisis, the King has asked for the service to be good value, but with a reported £100 million price tag, it's double the cost of his mother's in today's terms. Charles will wear St Edward's crown, decorated with more than 400 gemstones. Camilla, meanwhile, the Queen consort, will carry 2,200 diamonds in hers worth up to an estimated £5 billion. But what's the economic impact of the pomp and pageantry? Bloomberg Economics reckons that on balance, the extra bank holiday is going to cost the economy about £2 billion. But estimates have suggested that tourism, hospitality and souvenirs will bring in more than £1 billion, somewhat meagre compared to the Queen's Jubilee last year. For Britain's pubs and restaurants, that includes a £350 million boost to sales. So the hangovers may be as memorable as the coronation itself. 
We thank our Lizzie Burden for that reporting. And then, Ed, I was looking at Instagram, just how followed the royals are. Now, the yeah. royal family has 12.9 million Instagram followers. It's generally Charles and Camilla. Prince and Princess of Wales, they've got 14.6 million, so they put them to the post. But compare that to, like, Kim Kardashian, has got 345 yes. million. It sort of pales into insignificance. Yeah, like, you and I, two Brits living in the United States, and we've seen firsthand the following that the royal family has. A lot of that driven by Netflix and The Crown, uh, a fictional series that the, the, the royal family would say. Which is not a history engagement lesson. Really... <laughs> yeah. Right, but, you know, again, we did this piece on Bloomberg, like, the most Googled terms ahead of the coronation to kind of learn about it. There's really high engagement ahead of this weekend. Yeah, mainly the time is going to be painful for you. It's at 6.30 a.m. New York time. I'm going to be up anyway because I've got small kids, but don't get up at 3.30 in the morning, Ed, OK? TBD. TBD. It's a big moment in history, but I'll be tired. I mean, you could always be raving out until that time and then watch it, but we'll see. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Yep, don't forget, recap, podcast, iHeart, Spotify, Bloomberg, wherever you get your podcasts. What a week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.